This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us, Channel 132, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host this evening. I'm Mike Yusim, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change, and I'm with the McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm in the studio with our very own Ann Greenhall, good friend, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. Our third host, Jeff Klein, is off tonight. Ann, how you doing? I'm great, Mike. How are you? Good, good. And uh, <clears throat> just a, a quick warm-up. Uh, I've got a question out of the blue. Give me a good, a good definition of leadership. Ah, there it is. Mike. That's what, that's what we're talking <laughs> now about. You, now, you should know better than to right. punt that question to me because I'm very likely to quote Mike you see. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's true. But that's dangerous. That is dangerous. But I'll, how about I won't do that because I know uh, that, w- that mm. would embarrass you. So I'll say instead <laughs> that I think of leadership as an act. <laughs> Oh, good. And an action that is elevating, uh, in which we lift up others and uh, ourselves in the process. And a quick second question. This is completely out of the blue. I want listeners to run this by their own gray matter. What is your answer to the following question? When does leading matter? Under what conditions do you think leadership has greatest impact or its absence is most noticeable? Take it either way. That's a great question. <laughs> I was tempted to say that it always matters, Mike. It does, but maybe it comes yeah. in different forms. I'm sure that's true. But, yeah. you know, I think even yeah. in the uh, micro moments, in the small acts, yeah. that we can have uh, a greater impact than we appreciate. So don't be shy about stepping forward and, and taking up. action. Yeah, <laughs> right. Stepping forward and stepping up. That's good. And I just want to say a word about our uh, several guests this evening, and then we're going to jump right in. We're going to begin with former Stanford University President John Hennessy, uh, recently appointed chairman, uh, chairperson, chairman of Alphabet, uh, the board of directors. Alphabet, of course, is the parent of Google, and he's authored a book just out, a great book, called Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. And it's a lot about his time with the university, uh, but of course, well beyond that as well. And then during the second hour, we're going to be talking with two guests, Jeffrey Dorfman and Steve Cass, who have uh, had a number of roles in the field of dentistry, but they in particular have been pioneering a future. They've been entrepreneurs in the field of dentistry. I'm going to talk about uh, with them about how they made some of the changes that they have been directly involved in and how dentistry is practiced and who's in the field. So, And there it is. It's good. Very okay. good. <laughs> uh, I think with that, uh, we're going to bring Stanford University former president now, John Hennessy, on to our line. Hello, John. Hi, Mike. How are you today? Doing great. How are you doing? I hope you're okay, too. Yeah, it's a great day. Uh, excellent. Excellent. At least for for those of us not in North Carolina or South Carolina, it's a very good day. <laughs> a little rough down there at the moment. Uh, John, great to have you on the program and we've got a lot to talk about, but let me begin with um, your, <clears throat> let's just say your earlier years. Uh, you've been a computer scientist and engineer. Uh, could you have imagined when you were in college, I think you were at Villanova University, in fact, 
Uh, when you were in college, becoming a college president, did that ever occur to you? N- not at all, Mike. I um, decided I was interested in an academic career, but I, I happily could have been a professor for the rest of my life and stayed in the classroom. And it was an unexpected journey, I think, mm. moving into administration, as was doing a startup. Both were, both were things I never expected to do. Uh, well, let's take those uh, in the order you just referenced. In your decision to become a university administrator, uh, as a university faculty member, I realize personally that's a, that's a big deal. And if you can reflect on your decision to accept you were a dean at one point, provost, and then president, what led you to make the leap? Uh, accept the call might be the better word. Yes, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Dean was, Dean was a smaller step. I was still working with faculty. We were all engineering faculty. Uh, I had been chair of computer science, um, and, I enjoy, and I enjoyed being chair, so it was a, an opportunity to move to a slightly larger role. The big step for me was provost, and I was actually uncertain about it, um, and I happened to go to an event where Condi Rice was the keynote speaker. And she was just stepping down as provost. It was announced, but a new provost wasn't appointed. And she gave this marvelous speech about how higher education had changed her family's life and her grandfather in particular, who was a poor sharecropper in the South. And she ended by saying, that's why I've dedicated my life to higher education. Mm-hmm. And after I heard that speech, I thought, that's what higher education does, and that's why I should take the provost job. And I went in and told then President Carhart Casper that I'd, I'd take the job. John, wonderful. Just a quick, uh, I guess, job description to those not familiar with the academic right. title of provost. Sure. See if I can try. Uh, uh, COO is probably the is the corporate equivalent. Yep. Operating officer. It, it's everything. All the internal operations of the university usually are led by the provost. Budget, faculty appointments, space, yep. et cetera. And then to take that question I posed, and I'm going to turn uh, the baton over here to <laughs> Anne in just a minute. In your decision to become an entrepreneur, again, you're academic, you've got a job, um, tenure is secure. Why become an entrepreneur? It's an interesting question. We, we had done some fascinating and groundbreaking research, and we published our results. And we thought the people in the industry would pick up on our ideas. And that's not what happened. Um, in fact, they thought, well, that was nice academic work, but it won't really transfer to the real world. And along came a famous uh, computer entrepreneur who had been one of the key people in building Digital Equipment Corporation in those days, and said, if you want to see this technology get out, you're going to have to start a company and do it yourself. Hmm. And that persuaded us that we really did need to do it. So I got together with two co-founders, and we started a company. Um, we didn't know anything about starting a business, though. I should say we were naive in the, in the ultimate extreme. Hmm. Um, we had to learn by doing, basically, as we went along. Uh, great. And, John, just to go back to a phrase you decided to do it yourself, on some days, I've often thought a pretty good underlying, kind of almost a foundational mindset you need to get into the field of uh, leading others or making waves out there in our universe is the decision to simply take on the problems and mm-hmm. solve them yourself. So glad to hear you put it that way as you became an entrepreneur. So thank mm-hmm. you on that. And over to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. John, a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. I'm going to pick up on your phrase, learn by doing. Uh, 
if when you were a faculty member, what prepared you mm-hmm. for the first role as dean? And then a follow-up, how did your academic experience prepare you for being an entrepreneur? Well, I think, Anne, when you're a faculty member, you learn the culture of being a faculty member. I, In the time I was in all my administrative roles, I always referred to my fellow faculty members as colleagues because you <laughs> you want to maintain their respect and their admiration and what they respect and admire is your work as a scholar. And so that was critical to understanding the culture. And it's one of the reasons that many people who come from the corporate world and move into the university world have such a hard time dealing with the cultural changes, Mm -hmm. as do people from the academic world who move into into the corporate world. for me, the, the combination of experiences, understanding the academic culture, and then being put in the time machine that, that a, a startup is, where you have to make decisions constantly, often under uncertain conditions. And that helps you deal with being put in a difficult position where you have to make a decision, you have to make the call. Um, and that, that really helped prepare me for larger um, leadership roles in the academy. What, what would you say surprised you most about leadership in the academy and then in uh, an entrepreneurial venture? Uh, I think in the academy, um, the thing that probably surprises you the most is you become so aware of the multiple constituencies that you're serving in a leadership position. Certainly you have the faculty, but you also have the students and the families. You have staff, you have the local community in which the university sits, um, and then you have alumni scattered around the world, all of whom have a stake in the future of the institution. Mm. And so you, you have to figure out how to balance the interests of these various communities, which sometimes don't agree on all right. Um And that's key. Mm. I'm, you're making me remember uh, long ago, um, Judith Rosen um, was... Uh, Rudin, excuse me, Judith uh, Roden, Roden. Thank you. Roden. Was yeah, president right. here, Judith. Judith, and uh, I remember in just a casual conversation, and she was referring to all of the constituencies that something like parking or the academic calendar could become incredibly <laughs> contentious because of all of the of the constituencies. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. There's an old joke that um, to be a successful university president. You should provide parking for the faculty, parties for the students, and low tuition for the parents. <laughs> That's great. That's a pretty good Very formula. Good. <laughs> All right. And how about surprise uh, in your role as an entrepreneur? Oh, I think probably pace and timely and the pressure of time, particularly in a startup. Time is money. Decisions <laughs> have to get made. You find it. Um, you find yourself. And you're hiring at a pace, which... <laughs> You know, the way the academy hires, we take a year to hire somebody. You've got to hire dozens of people or hundreds of people sometimes in a year, and that's a very different pace. Um, you, also, you also have to be prepared to jump in and do whatever's necessary. Mm-hmm. You, you find, I, was, I was sort of the technical founder, spokesperson for the company, but mm-hmm. I ended up doing mm-hmm. cold calls to our first customers because I was the technical expert. Um, so you find yourself in many different roles in a relatively short amount of time. 
And you either learn on your feet or you discover that it's not the right thing for you. Mm, Very good. Mike? John, let's stay on this issue of making timely decisions. I, I think it's true of every profession, every position, but maybe especially true if you're in uh, technology mm-hmm. or maybe even more so if you're an entrepreneur in that field in that the, uh, the, the tempo is extraordinary, as we all know. And in girding yourself to face up the decisions that had to be made and to get through them, what were some of the preparatory steps you took to, I don't know, steady your mind or remind yourself that you had to make the decisions today? What were some of the techniques that um, got you to have a pretty good cycle time on decisions? Well, I think the, the I'd always start by trying to get the data and understand what the data um, really told us about what kind of circumstance we found ourselves in begin to develop a consensus about where to move. Generally, I would do that with the rest of the academic leadership, or if it was a business decision with the vice presidents of the university. A good example is what, uh, how we dealt with the financial crisis in 2008. Mm. We made a decision very different than other universities. We decided that this was a major reduction in the size of our endowment. We, we lost billions of dollars from the endowment, and that it was going to take a number of years to um, earn that money back so that we could continue. So we decided we we needed to cut back, and we needed to do a permanent cut. Um, And my experience, having been in a startup company and having had to do a layoff in, in a startup company, was you want to do it quickly. You don't want to drag it out over a long period of time. So we, we did our, made all our decisions in three months. We instituted all the cuts. We, we tried to be as generous as we could to people giving early retirement or severance packages. Um, but it enabled us to reposition the university in a year, basically, and be back on our feet and begin thinking about doing new things, rather than having a long, drawn-out series of small cuts that would last years. John, I'm going to remind our listeners that uh, this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, uh, Business uh, Leadership or Leadership More Generally in Action. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we are talking with you, John, John Hennessy, Chairman of the Board of Alphabet, the parent of Google, and former 16-year, indeed, President of Stanford University, author of the book that both Ann and I have right in front of us here mm-hmm. called Leading Matters lessons from my journey. And John, just to pick up on what you have just said about, in a sense, using the the experience or maybe the metaphor from technology enterprise where speed is almost, it's not everything, but it's very important. I think you imply that that informed your thinking then as a college president. And so let me get in a minute uh, you to confirm or disconfirm that that inference I've made, but also, if so, does it go the other way around? Do some of your university experiences inform your service now, say, as chair of the board at Alphabet? Oh, certainly. I think it goes both directions. I think in the university Mm -hmm. setting, the hardest thing to do, um, we're all trained as scholars to um, wait until we have all the evidence in, until we have Mm -hmm. all the data and then we can finally draw the conclusion and write the scholarly paper uh, we're looking for. 
but often, often when you're leaving a large institution, the decisions are too complicated. Mm-hmm. There's black and white. It's not, it's not clear. And so figuring out how you can drive a consensus um, or at least a consultative process that gives you enough confidence that if you move in a given direction, you'll have, you'll have the support of your colleagues because otherwise you can't get anything done. And that, that, that's something I really profe- I learned during my time in industry and then brought back to the academy. Um, today, I think, you know, we, if you see what's happening in technology companies, they increasingly find themselves under a level of public scrutiny mm. that, that corporations are often not used to and not subjected to. Um, but, of course... We in the university, it happens all the time. Universities are very open uh, institutions. So trying to think about how do we certainly engage the employees at Google, create opportunities for them to give input, but still have a reasoned and a a sensible decision-making process, I think is something uh, all all large companies struggle Mm -hmm. with now. That's great. Super. Thank you. John, as Mike said, uh, we both have your book right here with us. And I might, I just for a moment, if I could turn to your book and just ask you what inspired you to write it at this time? Oh, that's a great question, Ann. Um, as I was getting ready to step down from president and thinking about what I wanted to do next, um, I decided with a consulting, after some consulting some friends, to try to focus on one big thing. And I was struck then by what I sensed was a growing leadership void uh, among uh, uh, all parts of society in the corporate world, in, in government, uh, both in the U.S. and, and internationally. So I started, decided to start a program and to build the, the capability to have a program to help train future leaders. Mm-hmm. So it's a graduate program, I Tennessee Scholars, where we bring in outstanding students from around the world. Um, who are majors in everything from law to business to engineering to medicine, but also have a co-curricular program to try to build their leadership skills. And I decided that if we were going to have a program, I should be able to put down the lessons I've learned along the way in a form that I could share them uh, with with our our scholars. Um, and that was that was my initial goal: is to try to organize my thoughts and and convey what I've learned along the way. Well, that's great. And and you start with humility. So could you talk a little bit about that? Why is that the foundation? Yeah, I start with humility because I think humility is the basis of two important characteristics. One is the willingness to ask others for help, ask for their input. If you're humble, you you certainly realize you're never the smartest person in the room about every subject. <laughs> Um, and therefore, you're willing to engage your colleagues in, in planning and thinking and trying to uh, deal with the crises that come along, as well as the opportunities. The other, the other key reason is that humility is what allows you to admit you made a mistake mm-hmm. and to recover from that mistake as opposed to um, march forward in hubris and, and condemn yourself to an ever-worsening situation. Can you give an example of, you know, humility uh, in, in the workplace, something that really stands out for you? For me, I think, um, I, I think uh, I, 
I've made some mistakes along the way, and being willing to say, okay, I thought this was a good idea, but it didn't work out, or I couldn't get the support of my colleagues, um, and we have, to, we have to rethink what we're doing. Um, I feel strongly that hubris is the enemy of good leadership. Um, it is not the a foundation for good leadership, and I think we need to try to emphasize that more. That's great. Mike, do you want to follow up on that? Uh, John, I'm going to kind of follow up by jumping to almost the last chapter of your book <laughs> in between um, chapters devoted to your sort of your 10-point core element plan or uh, mm-hmm. I guess self-reflection on what it has, take, mm-hmm. has taken you to lead. Along the way, we touch with touch on authenticity, leadership as service, empathy, courage, collaboration, Innovation, very important, obviously. Uh, Curiosity. Uh, I'm intrigued, though. Chapter 9 of your book, close to the end, (laughs) references storytelling. Yeah. (laughs) Very, very intrigued by that. You've got a great example of the story you developed or the argument you developed uh, to indeed establish the Knight-Hennessy Scholarship Program. So I wonder if you could, for the benefit of the listeners, just tell a little bit of, of your thinking and the story that you told about why that was something you just had to build at Stanford? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. Well, as I said, I was, I was becoming dismayed about the quality of leadership. And this is, of course, this is several years ago before the current uh, leadership crisis, mm-hmm. which has gotten much worse in the meantime. But it was at the time when the refugee crisis was breaking out in Europe, the beginning of, of the discussions about uh, England leaving the EU, uh, the beginning of paralysis in our own in our own Congress in Washington. So I just felt we needed to do something about it, and I was looking around trying to think about what could we do. Uh, Stanford's an educational institution. I've spent most of my life in the academy. What could we do to help develop that? And I ended up going and doing some research, and I started by looking back at what the Rhodes Scholarship had done over the years uh, and what American Rhodes Scholars had done. It's a truly impressive list of people who went on to do uh, great things in many walks of life, in the corporate world, uh, as writers, as academics, as political leaders. So I um, then decided I would try it out on, on the trustees of the university when we were on a retreat. And I started by just naming a number of the Rhodes Scholars and said to the trustees, recall they all, these were all Rhodes Scholars, they all came through this program and look at their impact on the world. Imagine, Hmm. imagine if we could build a program like that at Stanford on the West Coast with the entrepreneurial culture that's such a deep part of what we are in Silicon Valley. Um, we could really do something extraordinary in terms of preparing future leaders. And the buzz in the room was palpable. I mean, people got it right away and said, yes, that's really a a great vision of what we could do. Uh, And that was the vision that I eventually took to Phil Knight, and he he agreed that it Mm. could do something really wonderful. And that was the beginning of our – we then had a beginning for our program. And, John, in telling the story, I think implicit – in the reference to the power of of storytelling is the ability to bring your listeners with you maybe more effectively than any other kind of metaphor or method for bringing people in. Does that capture at least a little bit of the flavor of why storytelling works? 
Yes, Mike, absolutely. It's about, well, I, I use the word storytelling because you're painting a vision of something that could be, and you're trying to engage both the head and the heart, the emotion behind what a difference this could make as well. And, and getting, getting the, the audience with you, whether it's an audience of one, in the case of Phil Knight, or an audience of 35 trustees sitting in a room, mm-hmm. um, you're trying to bring them along and get them to understand and see the power of where this vision could take us and what a difference it could make. And in lear- learning to be a storyteller, it's not natural to most of us, certainly not me. And what were some of the, I don't know, experiences or learning moments or learning methods by which you appreciated and then enacted the power of story giving? You know, I, I think one of my early experiences was going out as the technical representative for the company we were starting, MIPS uh, Computer Systems then, mm-hmm. and going out as sort of on technical sales to customers long before we had a product. We didn't have the product. We had a vision of what the product could be. We had some data about what was capable, but we had to paint a picture that would show them that if they were willing to buy our product, we could take them to a place that was far ahead of where they currently were. And that that was weaving a story about Mm -hmm. what could be done um, in partnership uh, together. And so that was a great lesson for me. And I think over the years, I had lots of other opportunities to to do that, particularly one of the chief jobs you have as a university president is fundraising. Uh, And when you're fundraising, you're basically Mm -hmm. trying to weave a story for a donor about what a difference their philanthropy could make. And most of the people I've met who are successful and are, are thinking about philanthropy, they are smart. They want to really understand that they're going to make a difference. And so weaving a story for them that talks about we could do something together, we could build a scholarship program. Imagine 20 years from now, bright young people coming from around the world um, to come here to get an education and the going out and changing our country as well as the, their own countries. Um, that's the kind of vision that really excites people. John, that is really interesting. We're going to come back to that after we take a, a breather or a brief station break. I want listeners to not go very far away. And just to anticipate, um, both for you, John, and our listeners, where we're going to take this, you were president of Stanford University for 16 years Presidents of uh, chief executives of companies, uh, the average is somewhere between around eight or nine years among the uh, Fortune 500. And I've always thought one of the reasons for that in the private sector is that the market changes. Uh, The times are different. And there is um, um, a time to move on and that the skill set required to keep going is just different in a different era. Going to ask you to reflect on your leadership near the end of your 16 years at Stanford, and the way you led that was probably a bit different from your first several years. So, if you could pick up on that, and how did you evolve, and what was different at the end from the way you led at the outset? Well, well I think the, at the outset, I um, had a fairly clear agenda of what I wanted to do. Um, at the end, you begin to to get 
you've been through several major changes, in our case, two major university campaigns that included accomplishing a number <coughs> of strategic goals. You then begin to think about how do you solidify those things, and then you have to think about what you want to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have you thought adequately about what follows on? I think many... Many leaders are reluctant to do that. They're reluctant to give up the chair, and as a result, they maybe hang on too long and actually diminish mm-hmm. their stature as a leader by, by not relinquishing the position um, when the time was appropriate. Yep. And, John, in terms of the demands on you, my guess is they were similar but also different from what you first experienced your stakeholders, you re- referenced them at the outset, probably came at you in a different way or pleaded you pleaded with you through different means, social media among those. So in terms of the demands upon your leadership, any discernible differences between what you faced near the end compared to those first couple of years in office? Yeah, that's an insightful question, Mike. I think the, the big change was the rise of social media and student activism. There, on a campus, there's always some level of student activism. It's always going on. But at the end, I think particularly um, with the election outcome, um, the amount of student strife that resulted uh, during that campaign was considerably raised. And in the beginning, we probably didn't appreciate how uh, significantly the students were feeling the changes and the the tenor around the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 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 led to real changes and the rise of mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, things like that. That that the students, and given the diversity in our student bodies now, really felt uh, were taken to heart and really felt disrupted by. And that was that was something, and it social media just made that run at a speed which was incredibly fast, and so that was a real a real change in thinking about the future of the university and how we had to engage our students. John, and to turn that into kind of a normative statement for our listeners, social media we all know it's enormously important, and I'm hearing you saying if you're in a position of responsibility, you really have to learn it. You really have to become a master of it for a host of reasons. What, what do you think? Oh, I think absolutely. You've got to have, you, in fact, in a large organization, if you're leading in a larger organization, you have to have people on your staff who are taking the pace of social media because something can happen so quickly and catch fire in this Twitter-driven world that something goes from a, a match to, uh, to a forest fire in almost no time. Mm. And so knowing that that's what's happening and that change is occurring is crucial to uh, being able to determine how you're going to shift the organization or how you're going to deal with the issue. Uh, and I think, I think it's, it's part of the job now. Mm-hmm. So, John, you're talking about uh, a challenge you faced in, in the uh, towards the end of your career as president of Stanford. When you look back at that 16-year tenure, what stands out as your greatest challenge? I think probably the greatest um, challenge is, you know, we had, we had several different uh, endeavors which were extremely challenging. Um, one of the, dealing with the financial crisis, I think certainly was one of the, was one of the bigger ones. 
Um, we, as I relate in the book, we um, explored the possibility of competing for a campus in New York City, mm-hmm. um, which turned out to be an extremely difficult negotiation process. And in the end, uh, we couldn't reconcile uh, the demands that the city wanted together with what my faculty would support in terms of mm-hmm. uh, creating a campus that was almost 3,000 miles from our campus. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, that was a that was a both a unique opportunity, but it was also a extremely difficult and demanding uh, challenge. So if you if you took advantage of it, you had to really have everything aligned, and we just couldn't get alignment between what the university needed and what the city needed. Mm, very good. And how did you come to think about succession in those uh, last couple of years? Well, I certainly began to think about it and uh, position the, some of my deans. We, we, um, one of the challenges in, the, in, in academia is they, we don't always spend as much time on succession and ensuring that we've got good bench strength in our leadership teams. I had a, one of the great advantages I had as, as president was I, I had the same provost as my chief operating officer for 16 years, which is Ooh, that's even remarkable. more unusual than a president <laughs> lasting 16 years. Yeah, uh, On average, provosts last about four years because the ones who are really good get chosen for presidents at other institutions, and the mm. ones who are not good at it mm. don't stay in it. Mm. So uh, that was really beneficial. What I had to do was try to position some of the younger upcoming deans as potential future uh, presidents and and provosts for the university, um, and we tried to we tried to work on that. We weren't entire. We we got a great president from outside the university that the trustees picked uh, to follow on me, and mm-hmm. that's um, that's a great choice. So. And just for fun, what happened to your pro your provost? My provost mm-hmm. actually uh, stayed on for a year to help in the transition, and then has stepped down and is leading co-leading a new effort we have on. Called Human Centered AI that deals with the explosion of interest around artificial intelligence. Oh, very good, <laughs> John. To shift gears a bit here before we begin to run out of time, uh, your work now, your service really as chair of the board at Alphabet, the parent of Google. Um, obviously, a very important position given the significance of Google in just about everything we think about and do. Um, and thus, even though you're not chief executive, you are part of the leadership team at the top, so to speak. What are your thoughts on leading a technology firm? And you've had a long history of leading firms, but probably nothing quite of the scale of Google in the past. So leading Google, a rather tumultuous period, and maybe all periods are tumultuous for tech uh, companies. But in any case, back to you, John. What, what does it take to lead in the kind of world that Google has partly made and is part of us as well? Yeah, it's an insightful question, Mike. I think things have, things have changed for technology companies. Um, when I started my first few companies, we were engineers building products often for other engineers or for business people. Uh, now, if you're at Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Amazon, you, you, you're building products that touch everybody's lives mm-hmm. many times a day. So it's a real it's a real change in the position, and of course that impact and the impact of the internet, of social media, of news cycles, has just um, magnified uh, 
significantly over the years. And so that means the company has to be much more acutely aware of that, that impact. Things still move very quickly. Um, so we worry a lot about that. But we also worry about how does Google maintain its innovation core now that it has 60,000 employees. Mm -hmm. We want to be nimble. You want to be able to introduce new products. You want to be able to innovate. And that's a much harder thing to do with 60,000 employees than it was to do with 10,000 employees. Critical question. You want to take a stab at your thinking (laughs) on that one? (laughs) How do you keep the the place innovative and fresh and high energy? So I think it starts with getting really creative people. It starts with some of the principles Mm. that Larry and Sergey set early on in the company to give employees a little bit of free time to work on things that were outside of their day-to-day responsibilities to think about the, the new innovation. And some of the important things Google has introduced came from that. Gmail came from that. Mm-hmm. Some of the things on local search came out of those early efforts. Um, if you keep that innovation cycle and you keep um, pride in technical achievement alive inside the company, uh, you can continue to drive the engineers to want to do great things. John, maybe a follow-up question on Mike's. Uh, how how would you say you try to facilitate the board? So I think the for me the the board has two roles. One is the is the governance role, which is the most direct, which is everything from making sure that. Uh, it's being operated in a fiscally appropriate manner, mm-hmm. looking at audit and the other key compensation. But the other half of it is, how can the board bring its wide range of experiences to help the company, to reflect on the important decisions they're making, but also to bring a different perspective that they may not see to get them to think about uh, various issues? So we try to We try to ensure that the board is spending as much time as possible on the strategic issues uh, Mm -hmm. facing Google, not just the short-term tactical issues. So here's a question that may be inappropriate, and you can just tell tell me so. But I'm wondering, uh, when we talk about Alphabet and Google, Mike, for example, in the introduction was very clear about the relationship between the two. Uh, Here at Penn, sometimes we find ourselves in a situation in which the Wharton School is really well-known abroad, <laughs> for example, in China, well <laughs> and mm. that can sometimes overshadow the name of Penn. So I'm just wondering if there's any conversation about brand recognition with respect to Google and Alphabet. That's an interesting question. I think when we decided to restructure mm. as Alphabet, we were partly inspired by uh, the the efforts that had occurred at Berkshire Hathaway and mm-hmm. how their structuring had allowed companies in different business sectors to thrive and to have great independent leadership and to have decision-making which didn't become cluttered um, across the different units. So we were trying to figure out how to achieve that mm-hmm. so that the other bets could be free of... Um, some of the mechanism that has to exist in Google, given that it's got 50,000 employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a key goal for us. 
And I think we live with the, hopefully someday in the future, uh, some of those other bets will have brand names that are as big as Google. Mm, Very good. Well, thank you. John, I just need to remind again our listeners that this is Leadership in Action. We're talking with you, John Hennessy, Chairman of the Board of Alphabet, uh, former president of Stanford University. I'm Mike Hussein. I'm with Ann Greenhall. And, John, your book, just to give our um, listeners a reference once again, Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey, uh, speaks to the importance of leadership, whether it is in the private sector or the nonprofit sector, a university in particular here. We are tomorrow running a two-day program here at the University of Pennsylvania by out of the office of the provost <laughs> uh, for leadership development among college administrators, so department chairs, division heads, uh, people who show great potential to take administrative roles are being invited for two days uh, to think and develop their own leadership. Um, what would you recommend? This is a rather direct yes. question. Uh, <laughs> go into that program in terms of content. What would you urge that uh, be stressed? In a sense, we're like you, we're a large university. Uh, yeah. A lot depends on effective leadership at the top. Well, first of all, I should commend you for, for doing this because I think it is it is sadly needed in the academic world. We expect that people who are hired as great scholars and researchers instantly can become great academic leaders, and that's not always the case. Um, I, I think we, we've learned that some of the skills you try to build in these settings are um, teamwork, ha- how do teams work together, because inevitably the university has to build up teams of individuals who come from different parts of the university and different disciplines. Um, so that's a, that's hmm. a key decision-making process. You know, the course that we've taught over the years for future potential um, academic leaders um, has been taught by, by one of our <laughs> faculty colleagues, Chuck Holloway, together uh, with John Margrich, the former CEO and chairman of the board of Cisco. And he starts out by reading Endurance, the story of Shackleton's um, <laughs> incredible journey and being frozen in the ice and surviving in the Antarctic ice and not losing one man on his entire journey. And he asks, what enabled him as a leader to take this group of men and build them into a, into a team that could ensure that they could complete their, re- complete their rescue mission without a loss of life? And he talks about the things that Shackleton did along the way to reinforce the camaraderie uh, and the teamwork among the men. It's a valuable lesson in terms of preparing yourself for a crisis. John, it's really interesting. I think we share the same philosophy. Let me test it out on you. Sometimes we understand best what's close to home by getting about as far away as we can possibly go, in this case, Antarctica. And I, my guess is that over the years in working with your provost and developing young faculty administrators, this is not the first time you've referenced Shackleton or maybe experiences akin to that. What do you think? Oh, I think, Mike, I think, I, as, as you know from looking at my book, I'm a great reader and I'm a great believer that one can learn from the lessons of other leaders who've been in difficult situations. And the situations are never identical but you can hopefully avoid some mistakes mm-hmm. by learning how people who've been put in difficult situations navigated through them 
and emerged successfully. Maybe just one follow-up, John. Is there something in the way in which you would conduct that seminar that might be distinct from other seminars? You know, I think one of the things we do as part of that, Anne, is we also construct opportunities for these young emerging leaders to get personal feedback, whether it's uh, a personal coach that can help them uh, develop and understand their uh, strengths and weaknesses. Mm. Um, Going through a 360 review um, is painful for everybody, but it's a real growth experience Mm -hmm. for people. And so why they don't necessarily enjoy the process and reflecting back, they found that it really was a good growth opportunity for them and improved their ability to lead the organization. That's great. And I would imagine, too, having opportunities for them to share and reflect on their experiences and to find some common ground. Absolutely. And to get a broader understanding of the institution they're in. I mean, uh, like like Penn, uh, Stanford has a very large medical school. Right. Medical school and hospital operations are radically different than the rest of the university. That's running a business, really. Um, and having some understanding of that, given the scale and the financial implications, is crucial to anybody who's leading, leading a university mm-hmm. these days. That's great. I think we got some good tips, Mike. Uh, some great guidance, <laughs> Thank you, John. John. I'm going to close here with a, a very personal question. As you reflect back on your own journey, and you're in conversation now with a, a 20-year-old undergraduate, double E major, an electrical <laughs> engineering major, a computer science major, who would imagine one day they would like to do something akin to what you've done, uh, uh, some time in higher education, both as an instructor and administrator, time out of higher education uh, with a startup now involved in a company like Google. So what advice, with the benefit of a couple of years looking back, would you have for a person still in college on how to think about that long pathway ahead? So I, yeah. I'd say... <laughs> Two things to them. One is it's, it's certainly not a predictable journey. You don't <laughs> know where the opportunities will arise and where the paths will lead. At one point, I was, uh, I was uncertain about taking the dean of engineering job, and one of my colleagues said to me, you know, you should think of it as opening a door that's going into a room you've never been in before. There'll be other doors going out to other places you've never been, and you don't need to worry about exactly where those doors lead at the present time. There'll be other opportunities that arise. And I try to tell young people this, that their first, their first job is only their first job. It's an opportunity to learn and to get a different kind of experience. You may decide you want to change industries. You may decide you want to move from a technical leader to a general management role. You may decide you want to go back and do an MBA or come back and do an engineering degree or come back and do a PhD. But be open to those possibilities because that's, it's a journey. It is absolutely Mm -hmm. a journey. Mm -hmm. And the journey is the part that's enjoyable. So don't, don't think just about the end destination. Think about the journey. We often hear that from other guests as well. And that is, uh, we need to look at every means to an end as an end in and of themselves that we have to live day by day. We want to do every day something that is meaningful and has impact and purpose to it. John, a final twist on this, looking now with the lens pointed in the other direction, 
What have you got up your sleeve for the next four or five years? Well, for the next four or five years, I'm going to be recruiting some of the best students I can find around the world and <laughs> helping them. We just we had our first um, group of scholars just show up the other day, um, 51 incredible people from, from around the world in all walks of all different majors and disciplines, um, and they're extraordinarily accomplished. We're going to help. Uh, I, I'm very optimistic that um, if we really make an investment in young people, they are extraordinary young mm. people. They want to do great things for the world. Uh, they want to do well for themselves by doing good for the world. Mm. And if we can, if we can continue to invest in them um, and help inspire them, I think the long-term benefits to to our country and the rest of the world will be significant. Mm. I can imagine one or two people out there listening to this are going to go to the website to find (laughs) out how to apply. (laughs) So uh, any any advice for a prospective um, applicant on how to think about this particular program? Well, we have a a very open application process. Um, So we just closed the applications for next year, so we'll have to wait wait until a year from now. But um, we're just looking for young, bright people. We're looking for people who um, see themselves in service to others, whether it be in a corporate leadership role or it be in, a, it be in government or in a nonprofit role or in the university. Um, and we're looking for people who are creative thinkers, who are willing to think outside the box to be contrarians occasionally. It's really interesting because it's almost the very definition of great leadership, and that <laughs> is service to others. So. Right. John, we wish you well with that uh, program. Let's give listeners um, just a, comment, a couple final words on how to learn more about what you've done, how to find your book, and how to, in particular, back to the program, learn more about that as well. Great. So uh, the book is available now on Amazon or directly from <laughs> the publisher. Um, it's a nice – I wrote a short book because I love books that I can read on an airplane flight from the East Coast mm-hmm. to the West Coast. So. This is a book you can finish on one, one flight. Um, our program, the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program, um, accepts students from around the world for any graduate program at Stanford um, and uh, is fully paid scholarship to do your graduate work along with a co-curricular uh, leadership development program. That's great. Um, and we've got, we'll admit roughly 75 students next year and 100 a year after that. And, John, qualifying criteria would include, from what you've said, I'm deducing this now, uh, people who are creative in experience and service-oriented in intent. Service-oriented. Recent grads, they have to apply within four years of their um, bachelor's degree. Um, But we're open to applicants from around the world um, and, as I said, any discipline. But with a a real determination... that they want to do good in the world over time. Yeah, that's great. great. Somebody wants to read your book, how do they find that? Uh, Easiest way is do a Google search. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's good. That is awesome. There aren't many people that can say it quite (laughs) that way, John. Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, well, listen, it's been great having you on the program. We wish you well. We wish especially uh, for the next several years, Every success in building this program, the Rhodes Scholar Program, of course, we all know about it. It's produced some remarkable people in our civilization, and we hope you will be doing the same. 
Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Anne. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.